And I think Paul's still kind of in this, I need to boast mode. But it's awkward, it's uncomfortable, and he's going to have to deal with some other things that are really awkward. So he just talked about how he was rather humiliatingly let down through the, in a basket through the wall and, and dropped down there from the city of Damascus. And uh, so that was his big let down, so to speak. And now he's going to talk about being caught up. So would somebody read chapter 12, verses 1 to 6? Boasting is necessary, though it is not enough. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ from 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know. God knows such a man is caught up in the third day. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. God is caught up in paradise and earth, inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to see. On behalf of such a man, I will go. But on my own behalf, I will not go, except in regard to my weakness. For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I will pray so that no one will credit me with more than he sees to me or hears me. It seems a little unnecessarily complicated, don't you think? You know, and you realize that Paul's reluctance to boast is really making this difficult. And so he starts again, boasting is necessary, though it's not profitable. You know, I don't want to, I don't like this. And he says, but I'm going to go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I assume that the false teachers were putting a lot of stock in their visions and revelations. And Paul's going to have to talk about that a little bit to get a hearing, but that's really uncomfortable. And he has been greatly reluctant to reveal that. So reluctant that it looks to me like he's gone 14 years without telling it. And when he does tell about it, he makes it really difficult because he doesn't even describe it in first person. He says, you know, I know a man in Christ. And I know how such a man... And I'll, I'll brag on behalf of such a man, but I won't on my own behalf. And he makes it really sound like it wasn't him. It was him. Doesn't make any sense otherwise. But he doesn't want to say me, I, whatever. So he talks of it in terms of third party stuff. Such a man, you know, I know a man. And he refuses to give the details. He, he tells very little. He either doesn't know how he was caught up or he can't tell what he received. You know, he doesn't have any right to share the details of the experience, so he doesn't. And so, wow, when you all get said and done, man, that, that took a lot. You know, and it just was rather uncomfortable and awkward. Paul's really afraid that people might think too highly of him, that people would believe something that they couldn't test. Wow, what a difference with the intruders. Man, they would have bragged about this from the time they received the revelation on. They would have given every, you know, detail and whatever. And Paul's, it's like pulling teeth to get him to talk about this. And, you know, it's just awkward. And, you know, he says, he says, For if I do wish to boast, in verse 6, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. You understand what he's saying? You know, it wouldn't be foolish if I boasted in the sense that I wouldn't be 
embarrassed by it being found out to be a fraudulent claim. I, I got the, I got the evidence. It really happened. You know, I'm nothing. I'm not, you know, this is not like uh, if I bragged about it, somebody you know call my hand. They can call my hand. I've got the I've got the cards. So uh, so, but but Paul doesn't want to boast, and he doesn't want people to look at him, and he doesn't want to talk about how he received the revelation. So he talks about such a man uh, who was caught up to the third heaven. Do you know there were three? The Jews thought of the atmosphere as the first heaven, the universe as the second heaven, and where God dwells as the third heaven. He was caught up to the third heaven, to paradise. That must have been something. You know, wow. That, that was... Wouldn't you want to talk about that? That happened to you? Can you imagine just being that reluctant and... Uh, you know, he fumbles and restarts and it's just awkward. Because ah, it's so uncomfortable to tell about something great that happened to him. So it really was Paul, though. There'd be no reason for him to re- be reluctant to reveal the revelation that came to somebody else. Uh, and you realize verse 7, we'll, we'll anticipate this a minute, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. Why give Paul a thorn in the flesh if it's somebody else that received the revelation? So it, Paul's talking about himself, but he does it in just a really cumbersome way because it is so difficult for him to try to tell about some experience like this that happened to him. Comments? Yes. It reminds me of um, Peter, James, and John in the situation. Jesus said, don't tell his body until after I've resurrected him. Can you imagine how hard that was to keep it a secret? Yes. Yes, good point. That Jesus told Peter, James, and John not to tell about the transfiguration until he was raised from the dead. Must have been really difficult to keep that a secret. That's exactly right. I mean, man, if this had happened to us, the idea of not being able to tell it would have just probably torn us up. You know, I've just got to tell. You know, so, so you really see Paul's humility and his, you know, efforts not to draw attention to himself. Other thoughts? Seven to thirteen. Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelation, the only thing that God has given to me, unless I should be exalted above measure. Serious saying, I visited the Lord three times in my heart. He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, my strength is made perfect for me. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my eternity how Christ made us upon me. Before I take pleasure in the infirmities and appropriates and needs and persecutions and distresses, my Christ said, When I am weak, I am strong. I have been full of boasting, that is noble. For I offer that to many bodies, for nothing is I behind the most eminent apostles for lying after. Through the size of the apostles, Lord, I promise among you all perseverance and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Okay, so look at verse 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, 
There was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. There is a big spiritual peril in self-exaltation. And so God did things to help Paul be humble. Like dropping him down over the wall in Damascus and sticking the thorn through his flesh, staking him down to the ground again. He, he, he gave him humbling experiences so that he did not get the big head. Now, this thorn in the flesh that God gave Paul was a messenger of Satan. You know, it's a horrible poison that the antidote to which is another poison. Think about exalting himself is so bad that it was worth God using a messenger of Satan to keep Paul humble. We probably don't realize the danger of exalting ourselves and the extreme need to be humble. But Paul sees that. And it's interesting that God can use a messenger of Satan. But what you see, I believe, is that there are a lot of times when Satan unwittingly serves God's purposes. Now, I don't believe Satan gave the messenger to humble Paul. That surely wasn't Satan's goal. I assume Satan was trying to discourage Paul, to defeat Paul, to dishearten Paul. He was trying to mess up Paul's work with the thorn. But it's sort of like God commandeered it and used it for a good purpose to humble Paul. Of course, what that messenger does in Paul depends a great deal on what Paul does. How he handles that, how he receives it. You know, there are a lot of events in which God has a purpose and Satan has a purpose. Will God's purpose be achieved or Satan's will depend on how we respond to it. Now, Paul could have let the thorn stop him from serving the Lord. And then Satan would have gotten his goal out of that. It, but it is remarkable to think about how God and Satan work in the same events. Have you ever thought about that? There's a lot of examples of that. You remember when David numbered the people? God and Satan both worked in that. Will you remember when Joseph was sold into slavery? Now, who inspired the envy in Joseph's brothers? That was Satan. Who used Joseph's sale to preserve the family? That was God. God backfired that one against Satan. You know, when Satan persecutes the Christians of the first century, like we were talking about, Satan's effort was to try to stop it out, but God used it to spread it. You know, and, and you can come up with lots of that. The supreme example is the crucifixion of Jesus. Who entered Satan, who entered Judas's heart to betray Jesus? Satan. But God had Jesus put to death by his predetermined plan to save men from sin. So here's a messenger of Satan that God uses to humble Paul. It's interesting that the visit to heaven then was accompanied by visits from hell, so to speak. And uh, Paul prayed three times. 
that the thorn in the flesh would leave him. But God said, no, it's better for him to stay afflicted. That shows you how dangerous the self-exaltation must be. God is really concerned with the possibility that these visions and revelations and other things are going to make Paul arrogant. So even though Paul pleads with him to take that thorn away, God doesn't do it. God says, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. You're, you're the strongest when you recognize your weakness and you turn and rely on the Lord. You know, God's power comes to its full extent in our weakness. So the secret to Paul's strength is how weak he was and how much it made him depend on God. Things that weaken us, things that make us more dependent, help us. That's hard to believe. That's hard to want. Things that make me less able to handle everything on my own and, and more willing to turn to God and more willing to turn to my brethren are things that make me stronger and better. It's really ironic, isn't it? It's amazing how God uses those. You wonder what the thorn in the flesh was, don't you? And I don't know the answer to that. Maybe it's good we don't. What if we did? What if we knew exactly what it was? Maybe we would have a hard time seeing our thorns as being similar. You know, the more specific God was, the more we might not relate to it if we didn't have that specific thorn. I think there's a lot of, a big range of possibilities. Probably the, the broadest categories are some sort of physical suffering, or some sort of persecution, or some sort of temptation to sin. I think those are all in the realm of possibility. There's tons of categories under each one of those. We could probably look at all of those things in a profitable way. And, and Paul ends up being content with these weaknesses. You know, he says, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How do you feel? about weaknesses and insults and distresses and persecutions and difficulties? How do we feel about our defeats and our discouragements and our lack of success and, and the obstacles and the frustration? Paul is content with those things. It took me a long time for this to dawn on me and it'll probably take me just as long for me to apply this. But I thought way later than I should have about the idea that really the Lord is in control of the things that happen to me. And He loves me. And He causes all things to work together for my good. So why should I be upset about things that happen? God's working them together for my good. He's in control. He sees a good purpose for those things. 
Now, I don't think it's wrong for us to pray three times, or however long, many, for God to remove the thorn. But when God chooses not to do that, should we not be content and rejoice that God's purpose is being accomplished and He knows what's best? And there have been many times that my idea about what was best was not, was not right. There have been times that I've been really disappointed. And then later I came to be thankful for my disappointment because it dawned on me for various reasons how bad it would have been if I had had my way about it. So I think trusting in the Lord and recognizing there may be a very good reason why God wants me to be defeated more and wants me to be uh, less successful. It may, it may help me. He may, he may know I need that. So Paul says again, I've become foolish. You yourselves have compelled me. You made me do it. (laughs) But, you know, he's radically redefined the content of boasting. Nobody else would have ever called that boasting what he did. And even then, he is just so uncomfortable as he looks back on it one last time. Oh, I'm so sorry, but you forced my hand. You know, because... He says, actually, I should have been commended by you. If any church was qualified to write a testimonial letter for Paul, it was Corinth. They failed to rally to his defense. They left him to have to defend himself. So he's really kind of putting the onus on them for putting him in this awkward position. They're kind of ashamed of their chief tongue-tied apostle in comparison with these domineering rivals that are so full of themselves. They should have come to his defense. And we ought to come to the defense of our unjustly criticized brothers so they're not in the position of having to defend themselves. You know what happens sometimes. There are times when brethren are unjustly criticized. And we know it's wrong. We know it's unjust. We have to stand up for it. I would say, wait a minute. That criticism is not valid. So, Paul says, you know, I was not inferior to the most eminent apostles. Again, I think talking about the false apostles from verse 13. And he says, I've given you the credentials, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. You know, signs, wonders, and miracles are not three different things. They're three aspects of the same thing. A sign refers to like the deeper meaning of the miracle and and, and the, the fact that it uh, authenticates the message. A wonder refers to the amazement that is produced in us by what happens. And the term miracle refers to the power of God in in producing it. So he says in verse 13, For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches? Except that I myself did not become a burden to you. Forgive me this wrong. What dreadful treatment. I didn't exploit you. I didn't figure out a way to grab your money. I am so sorry. You know, forgive me for wronging you so badly. You realize the irony in that, right? You know, he pleads for forgiveness for having given them the benefits of having an apostle without having to pay for it. You know, it is so strange to think of somebody complaining about not being exploited. 
I should have. I'm sorry. You know, I should have made you give me a bunch of money. But I, I'm, I'm really sorry I didn't. It's just, you know, wow. You wonder if even these words wouldn't kind of just unmask the uh, ridiculous accusations of the false teachers. And, and, and I want you to think again. Paul's attitude toward Corinth. Because he is defending himself when he should never have to be in a position to defend himself to them. You know, Corinth had received more attention than just about anywhere else. Four letters, I think. The two of which we have is more material written to one church in the Bible by Paul than any other than any other church. Except for Ephesus, Paul spent more time with Corinth since beginning his journeys than with any other church as best we can tell. I think Paul worried about him more. And then they're complaining because he doesn't, you know, take their money. The amazing thing to me is Paul still cared about them. He doesn't get exasperated. He's warning them. He's worried about them. But it's not like he's put out with them and I've had enough. You know, I just don't, I don't have to put up with this. You know, I don't have to be treated this way. He doesn't ever say that. I don't think he ever feels that. He still loves them. He's frank and bold, but he, he's frank and bold because he really cares about them. He's trying to keep them away from these false teachers who are perverting the gospel. So when I think about the lessons in this, you think about how Paul did not seek to boast, did not seek attention, did not seek recognition. You think about seeing the blessing in our weakness. And recognizing that when the Lord says no to our requests, there may be a real blessing in that. And that when we are not so successful, and when things don't go so well, that may be a real blessing. If they always went well, we probably couldn't get our head through the door. And, and, and you see the lesson in loving Despite these outrageous false accusations and the totally unfair suspicions that they have. These are good lessons. It's just good to try to think through Paul's mindset. You know, the things we've the thing we've said all through 2 Corinthians is that Paul reveals his heart more in this book than anywhere else. So you're able to see not just what Paul did, but how he felt and what his attitudes were. And they're, they're models for us. We need to imitate this. You know, it's helpful for us just to go back and reflect on and try to think through the mindset that Paul had. Try to really develop the heart of Paul. Thoughts and comments? Jason. Satan so much really shows you his superior wisdom and our need to trust that wisdom. Carla? Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, I think that 
find a thorn that Paul had not already experienced from chapter 11. Uh, good point, yes. Uh, you wouldn't think he wouldn't need any more, right? But it is hard to keep, even in all this, us from exalting ourselves. John. I don't know. When do you know when you should stop praying for something because it's the will of God? I do know this. We ought to always pray that God's will be done. You know we ought to want that. I've I, I come up with this illustration I use every once in a while. Um, you know, what if there were, you got a button? And if you were pushing that button when you prayed, that God would automatically do it, whether it's His will or not. You could guarantee He'd do it just by pushing the button. My question is, how often would you push that button? My answer is, never. Whoa! I would never want my will to be done if it wasn't God's. That would be a disaster. I don't consider praying that God's will be done to be kind of a bummer. Oh, i got to only do it if His will's done. I consider it to be safe. You know, I'd be afraid to pray if I didn't wasn't able to, to say, may your will be done. And, and to, to leave that understanding with the Lord. I don't want my will to be done over His. He is way more wise than I am. He's loving. He wants what's best for me. I mean, be like a little kid. You know, they want to play with matches. They want to play with the lighter. And mom and dad say no. Well, you know, if you had wisdom as a little kid, you'd realize, I don't want, you know, mom and dad to say yes when they know it's best to say no. You know, you don't. Now, I understand as a little kid, you don't understand that. But we're grown up enough to understand God's our Heavenly Father when He says no, there's a good reason and we need to accept that. But I don't know when we prayed enough. I don't think we're necessarily bound to just three times. And I agree, the passage was like Luke 18 with the widow, shows her coming continually. 
Uh, so it may be there are times God wants to see how persistent we are. I don't know. Uh, but, but I think we always ought to pray with a very great acceptance of God's will. And I think we ought to really feel and believe, hey, if God doesn't see this as best, I don't want it to happen. Yes. will be done. We want him to do whatever it takes to us so that his will will be done in us. Amen, Chase. We certainly always need to want the Lord's will to be done and that is the greatest goal we could have. Amen. Other thoughts? Also, when we pray for the Lord, um, we have to be patient and accepting to what He blessed on us with Nehemiah. We actually prayed for four months. Yes, uh huh. Four months and weeks and prayed fervently to the Lord. And look what happened. He got blessed. Amen. Yeah, I don't think this is a sign that we should just give up on praying. Though evidently Paul realized after the three times, I don't know if God revealed it or what, that it wasn't God's will, and we may come to see that as well. Kelly. Yeah, on that point, it's not said, and he has to pray for that, but he said to me, right. and then Good points. Yeah. I mean, God tells Paul in, in verse uh, 9, my grace is sufficient for you. So he had God's revelation. Jesus seems to have prayed until Judas was coming. So yeah, I don't think we're bound to say three times is it or something like that. I do think there may be times that we come to see, I believe this is God's will and I'm going to change my prayer. Uh, but, but as long as we pray that God's will be done, I don't believe he's upset with us for praying. I do think we ought to try to conform our prayers to what we understand God's revealed will to be. The more closely we pray according to what he's revealed, I think that's a that's a positive thing. I think you see a lot of that in the Bible. Yes, well, Kim? I think what's also important is, like, when you pray, God wants us to be honest, but still, like, lowly, because you read, like, David and Christ and Paul and Job and how they express themselves. You know, they weren't always sweet and happy right. when they prayed. They were very honest, but 
they were still acknowledging that God is above them. Good point, yes. David and others were very honest in their prayers. Often, sometimes their prayers were just a cry to God, not just, my God, do this, but just opening their heart to God, which is appropriate. Very important. Awesome. Is there a benefit to praying to God in a way that we know about can we pray maybe uh, that God answer us in some way you know if they do this then we'll come up like uh, uh, David and his armor bearer did uh, the problem is I'm not sure how we know whether God accepted our condition so I don't know the answer to that I think we could at least pray that God defeat us if that's not his will Logan The more we are uh, reflecting His glory and His image, the more will our prayers will be aligned with God's will. Amen. Okay. What's that? God-centered perspective and value what he does. Amen. That does change our outlook. Then. Yeah, the Lord directly answered Paul. He doesn't directly answer our prayers. We might have limited that. We're going to sing, let's sing four songs, and then we're going to break for lunch. So, wait, Stacey.